I collect my rocks. I collect my rocks. I collect my rocks. I collect my rocks. Put them in a bag. Put them in a box. Filling up my pockets. Filling up my socks. Every time I take a walk, I collect rocks. Hello, good evening, and welcome to your Tuesday evening GradCast, the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Eamon Chen. I'll be one of your hosts tonight. And with me as co-host, we have... Gregory Robinson. Awesome. And our guest tonight is Carolyn Hill. Hi, how are you doing, Carolyn? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming. So you're a PhD student. You are in uh, geology. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's right. The Department of Earth Sciences. Okay. And what is it that you do there as a student? What do you study? So my topic is Precambrian sedimentology. So that's studying rocks that are older than 541 million years old. And specifically, the ones I'm working on are about 2.3 billion years old. Okay, so you said older than 500 or so million years, mm -hmm. but specifically you're working the 2 billion-ish range. Right, so the Precambrian is anything older than 541 million years, and then more specifically I'm working in the Paleoproterozoic era, which is between 2.5 and 1.6 billion years. That seems like a really, really big range. Like, what, what's the oldest? What's the oldest rock what's the out oldest there? Rock. The oldest sedimentary rock, I believe, is about 3.7 billion years. So okay. it does extend pretty far back, even older than what I'm working on by another billion and, years for sure. And and how old is the Earth itself? The Earth is about 4.6 billion years. Okay. So the rocks I'm working on were deposited about halfway through Earth's history. And so you said you're working with sedimentary rocks. That's right. So I'm pretty sure I learned this from the Magic School Bus way back in the day, but uh, w could you tell us one more time, what what is a sedimentary rock? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of different types. Mm -hmm. The main one that I'm working on are siliciclastic. So they're made of uh, bits and pieces of material that was weathered from pre-existing rocks. So think of like sand grains and mud particles, things like okay. that. There are a few chemical sedimentary rocks, the ones I'm working on, which is like carbonate. Not limestone, but it's been altered to dolostone, but still carbonate. So sedimentary, as, as opposed to the other sorts of rocks, these are formed from small grains of other rocks, sort of compressed all together. Yes. Kind of thing, as opposed to just emerging molten from the Earth's core and all that sort of other stuff. Right, exactly. So your igneous rocks come from lava or magma, mm -hmm. from uh, the Earth's mantle, and metamorphic rocks can be sedimentary, originally sedimentary or volcanic, and then just mm -hmm. change from pressure and temperature into metamorphic. Interesting. Do you have a favorite rock? Great question. And do you have a pet rock as well? <laughs> I do not have a pet rock. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, I have many rocks, but none are pets. Okay. Uh, my favorite rock, oof, that's a lot harder to answer then. There's just so I many good ones out there. There's so many great ones. Yeah. I don't think I could choose. Okay. <laughs> so um, with these types of sedimentary rocks, um, what is it that you're hoping to find out through your research? What are you, you know, trying, hoping to discover? So the main kind of research question of my thesis is mm -hmm. what is the depositional setting represented by the Gordon Lake Formation? That's the formation I'm working on. Okay. 
So in order to do that, we're uh, describing the different types of lithologies or rock types that are there, structures, textures, you know, all the aspects of the rock. They can help us determine depositional environment. From that, I've kind of branched off to two separate questions, mm -hmm. kind of sub-questions. So the first is, is there any indication of life preserved in the rocks, which we have found some. And then the other is, there's another group of structures called soft sediment deformation structures. And what are the processes, trigger mechanisms that led to their formation? And that can give us some indication of conditions during and shortly after deposition, and some possible indications of basin tectonism and things like that. No okay. so a lot. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot in there, too. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I'm just curious, you said it was the Gordon Lake? Where, where is the Gordon Lake? So the Gordon Lake is actually near Sault Ste. Marie. Oh. That's kind mm. of where the first type section was identified. So it's just named after. Did you say that the type section? Like, yes. So rocks that are all similar, essentially? Yeah, so a type section is basically your characteristic rock types, what the formation looks like. So if someone wondered, what does the Gordon Lake formation look like? They could go to the section and be like, I have a general understanding yeah. of what's happening. Interesting. Yeah. So you said, as sort of a secondary question, you're interested in um, indicators of life. Yes. in these rocks. And and once again, you're working with uh, rocks with an age range of over 2 billion years. That's right. And there was life on Earth at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Even before that, we have extensive colonization by microbial mats. Okay. What's a microbial mat? <laughs> so think of it as those kind of slimy, usually green layers that you find in um, sometimes puddles or in uh, shallow marine environments. Uh, tidal flats are a good place to find microbial mats. Those really kind of sticky, sticky okay. layers covering the sediment. Sort of like slimy, goopy stuff. Basically, yeah. All right. Was there a lot of life on Earth at the time? Was it just, you know, little bits and pieces? Or are, are they found all over the place? Pretty much all over the place. We have most evidence pointing them to like marine environments, like okay. coastline kind of things. They probably did also colonize terrestrial environments but it's harder to preserve their signatures in the rocks in those types of areas. So, Right. So what kind of signatures would these sorts of early life leave? I mean, when I think of fossils, it would be something with a bone or a shell, something hard that, you know, could be left behind. But you're talking about microbes. These are single cells. These are teeny tiny. Would there be fossils of these microbes that you can look at? Or what indications of life do you find in these rocks? If you're really lucky, you can find preserved cells, microbial mm -hmm. cells. That's mm. pretty uncommon. So normally you're just looking for structures that have been influenced by microbes in the rock record. So some people may be familiar with stromatolites, okay. usually the kind of domal forms like you find in Shark Bay in the Bahamas nowadays. All right. So there's still some, still some stromatolites forming. And so those form by repetitive layers of microbial mat growth. So a mat will grow, be covered by a layer of sediment. The microbes will move upwards to the surface layer, and then they'll just keep forming layers on top of each other. So that gets preserved as these laminated structures. Is that what you found? We have found a few found small yeah. stromatolites, yep. Hmm. And then the other type of structure is called microbially induced sedimentary structures. And that's more common in siliciclastic rocks that I'm working with, so like the sandy and muddy sediments. And these 
form through microbial mat destruction, decay, growth, and kind of any associated processes, basically. And that can be preserved as fragments that appear torn and eroded, kind of moved elsewhere. There can be laminations in the rocks. But the key is that you find microtextures in thin section, really kind of indicating the increased cohesion of the sediment, basically. Hmm. So like life makes the sediment stick together more? Right, exactly, yeah. So that's also partially why we have better preserved sedimentary structures, because they would have been uh, colonized by microbial mats and stabilized more. So the very first point that uh, life existed on Earth, does that align with when we first found sedimentary rocks? Hmm. It's tricky because we didn't have a lot of continental material before kind of the Paleoproterozoic, the kind of area I'm, or the time period that I'm working in. Right. So there was not a lot of opportunity for sedimentary rocks to be deposited. Okay. If they don't have kind of a basin and area to be preserved in. Yeah. So life could have started first and then we found these rocks later afterwards. In my life, I'm talking about like unicellular organisms, not us. So. <laughs> <laughs> So we have micro evidence of microbial mats in rocks about 3.7 billion years old. Um, there are going to be sedimentary rocks of that time period that don't necessarily preserve them. So it's just kind of depends on. So it could go either the succession. way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And so and even if there were at the time microbial mats in the area, they may just not have been preserved. Yeah. So it's kind of mm. the farther you go back in the rock record, the harder it is to reconstruct your environment. There's not a lot of rock to go off of, and it's usually changed quite a bit that it's hard to kind of identify those primary signatures sometimes. Now, you mentioned that to look at these rocks, you, you said you put, get cut them into sections. How exactly does one cut a rock? Right. So I think they're pretty, like, rock hard. <laughs> 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 Sorry for the pun. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. <laughs> so if you want to look at the... Uh, kind of interior contents of a rock, yes, you need to cut it with a rock saw. So you can do that, and then your technician will cut an even thinner slice of the rock and mount it on a glass slide, and then you can look at it under a microscope and hmm. identify the different minerals and textures. So how thin are we talking about here in terms of, like, how you cut the rock? So it's going to be, like, microns thick. As in, like, a thousandth-ish of, of a meter? I think it's like a, a millionth. A millionth? That's a micro. Yeah, yeah. Millimeter right, is right. one one thousandth, then a micrometer is one one thousandth of, of a millimeter. Yeah. And so, like, for uh, human tissue or for, like, mice tissue, which is what I look at, mice tissue, we would do about five microns. So it okay. sounds like it's pretty similar to that. Yeah. It needs yeah. to be thin enough that the light can transmit and, through and yeah. you can actually, yeah. Interesting. See the properties. So what does a rock look like under the microscope? Oh, they're actually very cool. Oh, yeah. Very cool to look at. Yeah. So it depends on what your rock is made out of. Mm -hmm. If it's made of mostly mud, it's just going to look kind of dirty, maybe not so exciting, because you still need to have a higher magnification to look at those grains. Oh, so they're even smaller. Yes. You'd uh, have to look at okay. like a scanning electro electron microscope. Wow. But for like sand grains, for example, those are pretty easy to see under a microscope. It depends on what the mineral constituents are. Generally, you have a lot of quartz, which mm -hmm. is... Maybe not the most exciting. <laughs> Normally just kind of like gray and white. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever seen like a, a cool pattern in your rocks? Seen like a little picture of like Homer Simpson? 
<laughs> no, not that I can No? Remember. Okay. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> so what are you looking for when you're examining rocks under the microscope? So we're looking for the sedimentary textures. So that's grain size, sediment, sorting, and roundness. The roundness of like the, the particles? Yes, so the okay. individual grains. The longer that the grains have been transported mm-hmm. or reworked, they're going to be more round. So, so like polished all the edges smooth in a way? Sort of, yeah. So like the corners have been rounded down okay. over time from abrasion of reworking. And what, what did all these qualities like tell you? They can give you an indication of the maturity of the rock, which basically is... Like how grown up it is? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, kind of. Had some baby rocks. <laughs> A little house yeah. in the backyard. Just for <laughs> five kids. Yeah. Kind of how long the sediment's been in the transportation process. How long it's been in the sedimentary system before it was deposited, basically. Before it stopped moving. So the shorter time that it's been going through the sedimentary system, the more immature it's going to be. It's going to have more mud, it's going to have more angular grains, and more minerals that break down easier. But since they were deposited quicker, they didn't have time to kind of break down. So once you continue through the sedimentary system, so think you start off in like a mountainous area, and then you go through, say, rivers, um, to a beach environment, that's kind of towards the end of the sedimentary system, usually. Mm. So beach sands are usually very similar in size, very well sorted, rounded, and there's lots of quartz. So quartz is very stable mineral on our surface, chemically and mechanically. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the last one to break down. So you can tell there's not a lot of mud that's been worked out of the system. It's been removed, mostly quartz. All of the called labile minerals, like feldspar, has been broken down and removed. So it's had a longer time to be... So this is sort of like the life cycle of a rock Yeah. in a way. It comes like from the top of a mountain, tumbles down, goes through rivers, streams, whatever, um, and eventually finds its way on like to sort of the lowest point where it is, where it sort of just settles. Right. So there will be some material that gets trapped up in the sedimentary system okay. further upstream because mm-hmm. we do have deposits from rivers and lakes and things like that. But some of the sediment, yes, will make it all the way through and end up on the continental shelf and things like that. And that's where it stops. Oh, neat. So you said you were working um, at a site near Sault Marie, Gordon Lake area. Um, is there something peculiar or unique about that area that you go to to find the rocks there? So that's one of the study areas okay. for my thesis. So I am working, it's actually southeast of Sault Ste. Marie. It's near Bruce Mines. Okay. Don't know if you know where that is. And then north of Elliott Lake okay, in Killarney Provincial Park and up in Lady Evelyn Smoothwater Provincial Park. That's kind of up near the Temiskaming area. Okay. So those are my four main mapping areas. So what is it about those areas that make them interesting um, to study geologically? So those are the few areas where the Gordon Lake Formation actually is exposed on the surface. Okay. These rocks were mapped in, I think, the 50s. And so we're basing our locations off of those maps that were prepared. And based on what they have mapped out, those areas have the most exposures to work with. So I'm doing a regional study, and we need the most amount of rock as possible. So these are formations that are way underground, you're saying, and they come out to the surface, and they're exposed at these these parts? 
Right. So over time, the overlying material would have been removed, eroded away. So now we're left with these rocks at the surface. So like you've been talking a little bit about sand, but how how big of these rocks are we talking? Like, does it take a couple of people to lift them up or like they're just like a fit in your palm, small? Or like, what are we talking? So you can't map a rock that's loose because you don't know for sure that it was deposited there. Okay. So you need to find something that's still basically attached to the ground. Gotcha. Hmm. So these are outcrops. Some of them are like 35 meters thick, a couple hundred meters long. That's kind of the longest one. Usually they're just a few meters thick and long for the stuff I'm working on. So you're saying you you are mapping these rocks. Yes. How does one map a rock? So based on what you find on the geological map and what Mm -hmm. you find when you're walking through the bush, you measure the thicknesses of the beds that you see. So starting with the stratigraphic lowest units, moving up through the section to the oldest, and you're recording rock types, sedimentary structures, and any other indications that can tell you the depositional processes and what environment it might have been deposited in. So when you say each bed, are you talking about like each level going up? Is that what you what you mean? So rocks are deposited as beds. They can be beds are about um, a centimeter and they can be meters thick. Okay. And so they're bounded by usually erosional surfaces of some point. And that just indicates that like that package was deposited kind of as one sequence. Okay. So like around the same time that kind of like yeah, solidified? Yeah. yeah that it yeah? was deposited. And then <laughs> okay. as the process has changed, different layers would have been deposited on top. Gotcha. So that's why you see different changes in sedimentary rocks. Okay. And so for the, the rocks that you're working with, uh, is it a specific layer that you're uh, researching or is it just the entire sort of giant, you know, you said 30 odd meter long and thick piece? Yeah. So that's just individual outcrops. That's not a continuous section. Mm -hmm. So in the area north of Elliott Lake, that one that we know from drill core is about 300 meters thick. Oh, wow. That section. But in the southern area in Killarney, it's about a thousand meters thick. Wow. So it, it changes and that gives us a good indication that it was on a passive margin. That's like a continental shelf because we have thicker sediments that would have been deposited further offshore. And you There's guys are cutting space. the microns at a time. It's going to take a little <laughs> while. <laughs> you have to be selective, very selective. Okay. <laughs> well, what is the basis of your selection? Do you sort of just eyeball it and be like, yeah, that part in the middle around 35 meters deep looks good. (laughs) So you're trying to choose representative samples to look at under the microscope. And then you can identify what are called uh, lithophases, Mm -hmm. which are basically separate types of rock that have certain characteristics. And then the stratigraphic distribution and horizontal distribution will give you some indication of depositional environment. And that's kind of your main goal. So do you guys like go to Sault Ste. Marie just southeast of there and then bring your uh, your diamond saw or whatever it is and just <laughs> cut off a piece of rock? Is that what's going on? We normally bring a sledgehammer. <laughs> oh, you just ha- smash it? Hammer so off some, some a chunk mosh. of rock. Yep. Okay. Bring back to the lab and then cut it. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we've got shelves of rocks, drawers full of rocks. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get interested in geology and rocks in the first place? I've always been interested in rock and mineral fossil hunting as a okay. kid. So I didn't have the chance to kind of explore this field further in high school. 
and I didn't really know that it was that interested in it until I got to university when I took an elective in second year and I finally switched into earth sciences and then in second year there's a field mapping course introductory course Mm -hmm. that I took and absolutely loved every aspect of it and I just continued on on this trend Hmm. from second year undergrad all the way to your PhD now exactly so you've been here for a while then yeah almost 10 years but I've always liked the aspect of kind of putting the puzzle together for sedimentary rocks especially because they record the conditions that are surface you can get information on climate surficial environments right and especially for these really old rocks it gets a little bit more complicated to put the picture together which is you know rewarding when you get it in the end but sometimes it's a little difficult so if you could paint like the best picture of what life would have been like back then at your approximate what is it like 300 million year range what would life be like if i were to have a time machine and just go back so you wouldn't have that many continental land masses but if you were standing where the rocks like where the gordon lake formation was okay yeah so we've determined that it was deposited on a tidal flat tidal flat being just like a flat piece of land like shallow marine tidal flat influenced by tides okay gotcha so tides and storms were the dominant mechanisms for depositing the sediments there Mm -hmm. so it's a complex deposition because you have influence from wind waves both storm and regular and then Mm -hmm. tidal currents going back and forth as well so it's actually pretty hard to put together but it's interesting when the story so it'd be breezy warm enough that it's not the water's not frozen yeah yeah yes Hmm. exactly yeah. And then microbial mats everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So I'd be like walking in slime. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Would I be able to breathe? No, he would not be able to breathe. Hmm. Why wouldn't I be able to breathe? <laughs> <laughs> so at the time the Gordon Lake Formation was deposited, it's during this transitional period called the Great Oxidation Event. And that happened around 2.3 billion years ago. Okay. So that's when the Earth's atmosphere started to accumulate more oxygen. Still not nothing compared to the levels we have nowadays, but even like 1% oxygen. And it started increasing from there. And where did all this oxygen come from? So it's generally agreed that the cyanobacterial mats created the first pulses of oxygen because they create it as a waste product during photosynthesis. Ah, and these are some of the microbes that you found found in your sediments as well. Right. So we can't actually identify what type of microbes they were, because there are different types, but likely cyanobacteria, Hmm. probably cyanobacteria. And so what is it that makes this oxidation event great? What what was interesting or impressive about it, other than just an increase in some, you know, type of molecule in the air? Well, as we know now, we have much more oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So it had to start somewhere. The atmosphere on the early earth was composed more of your greenhouse gases. So think lots of carbon dioxide, Mm -hmm. methane, things like that. And so this increase in oxygen paved the way for more complex multicellular life and evolution just took off. So what would be the effect of all this oxygen on, on those bacteria back then? Right. So because it was their waste product, they would have died off very likely in mass Wow. Mass amounts. So it was like one morning it was 
1% oxygen the next day was like 20? It may not have been <laughs> quite as quick as that, but even kind of locally, you could have had some pretty intense casualties. Okay. So, I mean, thinking now, oxygen is uh, completely, like, totally um, necessary for a lot of life as we know it. Right. You're saying back in back in the day, uh, it was actually a waste product. It was a toxin. It killed right. off a lot of the early life on Earth. Yep. Yep, exactly. How times change. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So... Um, on our show here at GradCast, we uh, generally like to recognize that graduate students are complicated people who have a life outside <laughs> of school. Outside of your research, what is it that um, that you like to do? Are you in the lab or are you at work constantly or do you have some time off to, you know, take your mind off of things? I do get a little bit of free time every now and again okay. from reading papers, which is great. I like to go on hikes a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, London is a little bit flat for my taste, but it's <laughs> it's still good. Still lots of nice park areas to go walking. That's probably where I spend most of my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you go on these hikes, um, are you still on the lookout for interesting rocks, or can you sort of <laughs> compartmentalize I can't turn it off, no. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so even if you walk probably through most of the parks, you'll mm-hmm. find big kind of cream-looking blocks. Okay. Those are limestone from local um, local areas, London's underlain by limestone bedrock. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them, even around campus, there's tons of fossils in them. Really? Wow. Tons of fossils. Have you ever, like, been walking around in your leisurely time and then <laughs> saw a rock and you're like, oh, I'm going to grab that and section it? I've never S- sectioned what it, looks it, but like. I have grabbed. <laughs> okay. okay. I definitely have picked up rocks. <laughs> okay. For your rock collection? Yes, yeah. exactly. Nice. Ever growing, never stops. <laughs> so what kind of fossils do you find around here? Are they, you know, like your microbial fossils or are they something that we would more recognize as, you know, like shells or bones or things like that? So you find a lot of coral, coral fossils and um, brachiopods. Find some gastropods too. So these are rocks that are much younger than what I was working on or am oh. working on. Hmm. Well, neat. So, I mean, I guess next time I'm out for a walk, I'll try to keep my eyes open. <laughs> yeah, of course, you should. That's the great part about geology is that you're reconstructing these lost worlds, and you can never really turn it off. And it's everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's great knowing how different environments formed, and you really kind of puts you in tune with the Earth, and just kind of the time scale is a lot different to work on. It's, it's great. Well, that's amazing. Thank you very much for uh, coming on to GradCast tonight, Carolyn. Thank you so much. And all the best with your research, your uh, your dissertation, your thesis. And, um, you know, next time I hope you find interesting rocks on your hikes. Thank you. <laughs> so thanks for tuning in tonight. This has been GradCast. We are a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Yiman Chen, and your co-host was... Gregory Robinson. We were talking to Carolyn Hill, a PhD student in Earth Sciences. And if you would like to be a part of GradCast, if you would like to come on the show uh, and do your own interview, or if you would like to join our committee and help make this happen, you can get in touch with us via via email at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also find our show on... Uh, Apple iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and uh, at our website, gradcast.ca. 
Thanks and good night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.